A word of warning. This episode contains references to sexual violence. If you would prefer not to hear that, you might want to try one of the episodes in our archive. Incoming transmission. Welcome. Welcome to True Spies. Week by week, mission by mission, you'll hear the true stories behind the world's greatest espionage operations. You'll meet the people who navigate this secret world. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? This is True Spies. I'm walking around the camp, and from behind the bushes, I hear this psst, psst. And it was this skinny guy hiding behind the bushes. And he told me, he says, they're planning to kill you tonight. When you go to sleep, they're going to come and try to kill you. This is True Spies. Episode 106, Hidden Hand. The rural borderlands of Nicaragua and Honduras in the 80s are a dangerous place. The site of a vicious civil war between right-wing rebel groups and Nicaragua's socialist Sandinista government. And on this day, in this small frontier town, there isn't much sign of law enforcement when some of the rebel commanders let power go to their heads. What happened was two of the senior Subcommanders were not moral guys. They started going into town, uh, hiring prostitutes, drinking. They started stealing cattle. We got word of it that, you know, you have some elements of this camp has gone rogue. The CIA secretly fund and support the rebels. But on this morning, a decision has been taken to bring one of these rebel commanders to heel. The agency's Enrique Rick Prado, a.k.a. Major Alex, of the Honduran army, has been tasked with the job. And the tipping point was when we heard that they had raped the wife of another subcommander that had opposed them, that they had killed him and, and they had raped her. So we flew to this little village and they said, you go tell him that Major Alex is here and that I need to talk to him now. So here he comes in this civilian Jeep with his driver, who's his bodyguard. This rogue commander is known locally as Kara Mara, which translates to something like Commander Badface in English. Not an easy guy to take down to the station. In the village street, the two sides square off against each other. And he gets out and he has his pistol on him. And uh, I had my Car 15, it's a shortened version of the M16, and I had that slung over my shoulder and I had my, my sidearm and my ever-present grenade. I always carried two mini grenades in my, my pants pockets. And um, he came over and I started talking to him and I said, look, I am guaranteeing your safety back, but you need to answer for some of the allegations that are being thrown at you and you will get a fair trial, but you're coming back with me. One of those moments that can go one of two ways. He looked at his uh, driver and his driver reached under the seat and grabbed a Uzi, put it on his lap. And he was 30 yards away. He was just at the, at the edge of the park. Commander Badface still hasn't moved. I told Caramalo, I said, listen, don't make a real bad mistake here. I unslung my rifle and brought it up to his crotch. And I pointed at his crotch. I said, you know me. If your guy starts to shoot, I'm taking you out. 
When he enrolled in the early 1980s, Rick Prado didn't fit the profile of a typical CIA operative. At the time, the agency did not have in its paramilitary ranks anybody who was native Spanish-speaking and could pass for something other than a tragically white gringo. Rick may not have been another tragically white CIA gringo, but he was an absolute believer in his own debt of loyalty to the United States and in the Cold War mission of the CIA to fight communism across the world, using whatever techniques the agency deemed appropriate. But America wasn't his first country. His family are Cuban, and he was born in Cuba. My dad was a cowboy before he married my mom. So I had a horse before I had a bicycle. My father liked to shoot guns, and I was around guns. When I was six years old, they bought me my first Daisy Winchester-looking uh, BB gun. So it was a very happy childhood. We lived in a, uh, a good-sized town, but nonetheless still a town. And it was at the foot of the Escambray Mountains, which is where Che Guevara actually had his rebel stronghold. So it was a very free, very, um, it was a very happy period for us. But Cuba in the early 50s is not a peaceful place. It's led by a pro-American government, being challenged by left-wing rebels like Che Guevara and Fidel Castro. And one night, when Enrique is about seven years old, that conflict comes right to the Prado's front door. Because we were so near the Escambray Mountains, where the stronghold was, my town was a target of harassment kind of operations. These guys that were in the mountains were coming down and, and once in a while they would do raids. Well, this one particular time, my mom and dad had gone to the capital of the province for, for dinner. Uh, probably about 100 yards north of my house was a, a bar that was frequented by police officers and military folks. And all of a sudden, a ruckus broke out outside. We could hear yelling and, and some screaming and then a couple of isolated gunshots going back and forth. Young, gun-obsessed Rick wakes and jumps out of bed. I ran to the window and fascinated with the sound of, of gunfire and wanted to see what was happening. And I could see people running and everything else, but what I could not see was that just below me was a rebel with a fully automatic weapon. One of Che Guevara's troops trying to ambush off-duty police or soldiers at the bar across the street. And about that time, he let loose with that twice. And I was frozen, not in a bad way or a scared way. I actually was exhilarating, uh, watching the shells kind of cascade down the uh, windows. It's a moment that changes him forever. That was my first real encounter with shots being fired in anger. I think that that began forging the metal that, that is my character. On that night, the rebels slip back into the forest where they came from. But the changes are only just beginning. After Castro's forces take power, things begin to alter for the whole family. Rick's father's business is confiscated by the government. Then Rick's name appears on a list of children to be sent to Russia for communist indoctrination. So the Prados make a life-changing decision to give up everything and start a new life in America. But there's a catch. Only 10-year-old Rick is granted a visa to make the trip. The family head to Havana Airport. 
I mean, that is an unforgettable experience. My dad was driving us in his 57 Pontiac to the airport, and then when you made your way to the actual check-in point after you got your tickets, they had this thing, it was called the fishbowl, because it was all made of glass, and I'm an only child. I have no, no brothers or sisters, and I could see my mom and my dad on the other side of the glass, and uh, I look back through that glass, and I see my mom crying, and my dad biting his lip. In the States, Rick is enrolled in an orphanage and is eventually reunited with his parents when they too managed to escape a few years later, leaving everything behind. The family settle in Miami and begin to make a new life for themselves. But Rick never forgets how much he and his family lost in the revolution and never forgets that it was the United States that welcomed him instead. That was no picnic either, but still it toughened me and uh, it also gave me a sense of belief. Growing up in Miami, Rick is an athletic teenager. He learns martial arts, takes up scuba diving, and dabbles with street gangs and petty crime, learning skills which prove useful for his eventual career in the agency. Part of it is awareness. You know, you, you got to be aware of who your friends are, who your enemies are. Uh, if you're going to get in a fight, you got to look around and, and make sure the cops are not around and you get arrested or get beat up. Camaraderie, you know, uh, joining a team, uh, being part of something bigger than just yourself, you know, being different. I think all that played into, into the whole, uh, the molding there. In his 20s, he joins the Army Reserves gets training as a military diver and parachutist, and begins to dream of life as an international secret agent. He even applies directly to the CIA. I got a note back from a very polite note from them that basically said, look, uh, we're not hiring, we're firing. We're really cutting down. Post-Vietnam, there, there was huge attrition to both the military and to our federal agencies. But by the early 1980s, the US government is increasingly concerned about a new perceived threat the growth of socialist rebel groups throughout Central America. Groups which model themselves after Castro's Cuba look to the USSR for support and are hostile to the US. The Cold War is hotting up again. And most of them fomented by the, the surrogate system of Soviet Union to Cuba, Cuba to Nicaragua, and then Nicaragua to Salvador and Guatemala and places beyond. In Nicaragua, one of these socialist groups the Sandinistas, has already taken power. But after the disaster of the Vietnam War, the US can't be seen to interfere directly in these conflicts. So President Ronald Reagan begins to consider a different kind of involvement, covert, secret, the so-called hidden hand. So he started this mandate for the agency, which was ended up being called the Contra Program, meaning counter-revolutionaries. The name Contras sticks. Right-wing, anti-socialist guerrilla forces funded secretly by Washington. And the CIA needs undercover operatives who can blend into these groups. People who won't be suspected of working for Washington. People who aren't tragically white gringos. Rick's old application resurfaces. I remember that Cuban kid, you know, wherever it was, and they tracked me down. I believe in fate. I believe in, 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 in a God-given mission. So when they called me up and, and said, look, are you interested? I said, well, I only have one question for you. I said, is it long-term or is it this short-term contract again? 
And they said, no, this is long-term. And I said, I'll take it. And they said, do you want to even know what it is? I said, no, I don't care. I'll take it. If it's long-term and you need a guy like me, I'm there. In some episodes of True Spies, we hear of agents going through months or years of specialist training for their undercover assignments. Not in this case. I got some briefings, some polygraph tests, medical, physicals, and all that kind of stuff. And I was given an alias. And um, a couple of weeks later, I was in Nicaraguan border. What impresses the agency is his background and his motivation. I was a little kid when the same communist monster that was now devouring Nicaragua and Central America and, and beyond came to my childhood in Cuba. Now I was in a position to help fight it. He's given a new identity, Captain Alex, later Major Alex, a respected soldier in the Honduran army, which is friendly to the Contras. Rick's mission, to embed with the Contras in the jungles between Nicaragua and Honduras and provide them with weapons, equipment and military training, often on his own with the rebels. And life in the bush isn't easy. You can never forget those kind of experiences. And I walked into the first camp and the living conditions were abysmal. I mean, these guys had nothing. A few had boots that they had uh, recovered from the Sandinistas. They had no uniforms. You saw the guys walking around in flip-flops and shorts, ankle deep in mud, um, mosquitoes, no medical treatment, uh, malnourished, very little uh, logistic support to any of this. This does not look like a force that can hold back the tide of socialism across Central America. And you're going to train them in patrolling, communications, RPG-7s, and a 50 cal. RPG-7, that's a rocket-propelled grenade, and a 50 cal is a heavy machine gun. All special gifts from Washington, D.C. Some of that stuff I had to learn because I did not know. Part of my cover was that I was an experienced trainer. You have to. You can't go in there and go, look, I, I know how to shoot guns, man, but I've never done what you're doing. You can't do that. And I was the only CIA officer in those 10 Contra camps for the first 14 months of this program. Even with their new hardware behind them, the Sandinista enemy can sense the weakness of the Contras. They're now on the offensive. Rick's first taste of combat comes a few weeks later as he's delivering mortar ammunition to one Contra camp. And that's what was in the truck, mortar rounds and mortars. But unbeknownst to them, the Sandinistas had gotten close to them and they opened up from the brush, started shooting at us, hit, hit our trucks. Everybody dived for cover, everybody grabs their gun. It's Rick's first firefight, although only he knows that. His hosts are looking to him for guidance. Rounds from the Sandinistas start landing closer and closer to his position. Let's face it, the Sandinistas were not passive. But for the first time, the new tactical training begins to kick in. Rick leads a counterattack. And we started returning fire and uh, fairly efficiently, as a matter of fact, because my guys were by then a little better trained. So the Sandinistas retreated to their camp, which was literally three, 400 yards from where we were at. We we're not talking miles. So close, they can almost hear the enemy. It's only a matter of time before another ambush. So I, I decided to immediately institute the training for the mortars. We trained them on the mortars and we sent out the patrols that could go out and actually act as spotters to see where our stuff was hitting. This time, Rick's men take the fight to the Sandinistas. 
using the new American-bought mortars to cut off the enemy's escape routes. And we leveled their camp. They left and they never came back. I was happy how I reacted under fire, but I was never worried about it. In my mind, I, I, I had a pretty strong conviction that if I was in harm's way, I was gonna make it out or take a lot of them with me. So that was the mentality. As the months go by, the new training and equipment continues to produce results. Conditions begin to improve in the three or four camps that Captain Alex regularly visits, and he becomes a trusted ally of the Contras. The respect was there, the appreciation were there. They were extremely grateful. And like my boss had taught me from the day one, he says, look, your job is to go in there, make them like you, and make them depend on you. They have to understand that you're the umbilical cord to any training or any logistic support that they're going to have. And so I had a really great relationship with all these guys because, you know, I was the Santa Claus. Not all the gifts from Santa are successful. Sniper rifles, for example. They were hunters and most of them were good shots, especially with very little coaching, they became much better. I ordered some with scope so I could teach them how to uh, take out people at a distance and without compromising. That's very different from the normal Contra strategy, going in all guns blazing. I told them, I said, look, every time you do one of these raids, you're blowing 3,000 rounds, you're killing two Sandinistas, and one of you guys is either getting killed or wounded. In fact, Rick had learned something watching Castro and Che Guevara's rebels outside his bedroom window. Guerrillas don't fight fair fights. So... Um, I started inculcating them the art of harassment. My concept was you go to a camp where you know the Sandinistas are, you bring two or three guys, and um, you shoot the first guy that goes in the latrine. The first guy that gets up in the morning and goes to the latrine, you shoot him right off his butt. But that simply isn't the contra way. The machismo, that just didn't feel right to them. To them, it was like we would stand across from each other and no protection, just shooting at each other. To them, that machismo of, of attacking the camp and the visual, uh, more visible hands-on kind of stuff, what they kept gravitating to. A guerrilla unit cannot operate uh, against conventional units in a strength versus strength capability. You know, hit and run and ambushes and harassments demoralize the enemy, lower the enemy's numbers, make them waste ammunition, frustrate them. Little by little, you take their terrain. And Captain Alex receives a message from HQ. Probably about a year into the program, my headquarters came in with an instruction for our, our group to come up with an operation that elevated the harassment to something they could not ignore. Something beyond jungle skirmishes, raising the stakes. Hello again, True Spies listeners. This episode is made possible with the help of June's Journey, a thrilling detective game which you can play right on your phone. If you're a True Spies listener, it's safe to assume you're interested in clandestine missions, investigative adventures, and deciphering the latest mystery. You can find all of this in abundance and more in June's Journey. In the game, you'll play as the plucky June Parker, an amateur detective in the roaring 1920s. Poor June is set to investigating in order to find the truth of her sister's untimely murder. But I don't want to give too much away, because the fun of June's journey is seeing where this twisting story takes you. 
but I've just come to a grisly conclusion, thanks to working alongside other real players online as part of a detective club. Take heed, though. Not everyone wants to be June's friend. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android. Every day in America, 60 million packages are delivered. But we don't always know what's inside. He bent down to pick the package up. That's when the device detonated. Danger is everywhere, and no one is safe in Austin, Texas, as law enforcement hunts a serial bomber for 19 days. From Sony Music Entertainment, Campside Media, and Pegalo Pictures, this is Witnessed. 19 days. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts to binge all episodes or listen weekly wherever you get your podcasts. Headquarters wanted to do something that would be a good left hook to the jaw kind of thing. Rick thinks back to some of the conversations he's had with Contra fighters. In one camp, a man had noticed a cap that he was wearing. I had a baseball hat on that had my scuba badge on it with my jump wings. He goes, are you a scuba diver? And I go, yeah. He says, I am also. I said, really? He says, yeah, we have about six guys here. We were lobster divers, commercial divers. So we know how to strap on a tank and scuba dive. And I said, well, man, well, welcome to the brotherhood. It's a conversation that took place in a Contra camp that was different from the others. Staffed mostly by fighters from the Mosquito Indigenous Group. Those are Native Americans. They are recognized by our Native Americans as Native Americans, even though they're heavily uh, intermarriage with, with black slaves that washed ashore during the pirate days. Sandinista socialist government turned out to be as prejudiced against the Mosquitoes as every other Nicaraguan government had been so far. And that was why many Mosquitoes had joined the Contras. I fell in love with them. They were natural fighters, extremely dedicated. They, they've been fighting for autonomy for forever. So uh, they make really good guerrillas. And now one of them had revealed there was a group of professional scuba divers already in the Mosquito ranks, raising the possibility of a completely new type of clandestine operation. I came up with this idea of blowing up the Puerto Cabezas Pier. Puerto Cabezas Pier, that was the umbilical cord for the resupply from Russia via Cuba that was coming into Nicaragua. All the military assistance, fuel, ammunition, medical supplies, uniforms, blah, 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 those were all coming through Puerto Cabezas. The problem is, it's deep in Sandinista-controlled territory, heavily defended. I told my bosses, I said, well, there's only one way of doing this, and that's scuba. An underwater attack from the sea, attaching explosives to the pier. You have to get guys that are trained to do that, and I can train them. You know, I'm a military diver. And they flew it up the flagpole, and headquarters bought off on it. Captain Alex goes to work. So I, I did my selection of the six guys, ran them through some PT. A week or so into it, two of them said, nah, this isn't for us, you're, you know, you're too hard on us. Uh, so I was left with a core of four really hard dudes and a boat captain. Welcome to Scuba Boot Camp. I took these guys to an island in the northeast part of, of Honduras. And I was there for a month training these guys in compass swims, how to attach an explosive devices under a small pier. And the requirement to my headquarters was, guys, you got to provide me with whatever it is you want me to put here. 
and the agency supplies some bespoke equipment to carry the explosives. They came up with a special torpedo-shaped device that, that was buoyant, so it was swimmable. You don't want it bringing you up, but it cannot be dead weight that you're dragging it on the ground either. The team will swim underwater with the device and attach the explosives to the pier. Every detail is mapped out. We also timed it so it would be late at night. One, because we didn't want to be discovered, but also we didn't want to kill people. We didn't want to kill civilians or anybody that was working uh, on, on, on those boats or on that pier. Navigating long distances in the pitch dark is challenging, even for experienced divers. So a further device is created. We made these boards, they're called attack boards, and it has a depth gauge and, and a compass. So what you do is when you get into the water, you're looking at your target, you're looking at those lights, you look at your compass, okay, this is 180 degrees or 190 degrees, that's where I have to go. Headquarters even supply primitive infrared night vision goggles to allow the boat pilot to locate the divers in the water after the mission. It feels like everything has been thought of. On the chosen night, the Mosquito scuba team boards a small boat and motors out into enemy waters. Rick is with them, but has orders not to be part of the bomb delivery squad. Too high a risk of revealing the hidden hand. It's a long journey into the dark, but eventually the port appears on the horizon. One last check of the kit, and the divers slip quietly into the water. The responsibility of going into harm's way is your own personal liability, but when you send people into harm's way, there's a very heavy burden. So it teaches you to sweat the details, making sure that we had done everything possible to ensure that they could come back. There's nothing to do except wait for the team to return. You have one guy leading and then Two of the guys supporting him, they also have attack boards, and the fourth guy is the one that is actually pulling the device. Then, scanning the water with the infrared goggles, the boat captain spots something in the water. All four divers are pulled safely back aboard. Mission complete. The device is timed to detonate later that night, after the boat is back in Honduran waters. Three days later, when I was back, we got the uh, satellite photos of the, the damage the device had done on the pier. And it blew the, the, the top part of the pier into smithereens, including everything that was used to pump the oil and, and fuel and stuff like that. So it was, a, it was a substantial blow to them. I tell you, I my chest swelled to where it broke my shirt kind of stuff, you know? It was a very, very, very proud moment. But some aspects of the Contras war are more shameful. Throughout the conflict, the Contras are documented to commit numerous human rights abuses against civilians and prisoners. A report by the group that would later become Human Rights Watch documents kidnappings of civilians, summary executions and attacks on health facilities, among other crimes. The Sandinistas are brutal too, using torture and killings against their opponents. But American support for the Contras is becoming an open secret and increasingly controversial. These guys were freedom fighters. Were there isolated cases of people going above and beyond? You've had CIA folks that have betrayed their country and sold out to the Russians. You have FBI senior guys that have defected. Those are the minorities. Those are the exceptions. You cannot taint a whole movement or a whole culture just by the anomalies. 
and one of Rick's most dangerous missions is to deal with some of those anomalies. A popular commander in one of the Contra camps has been ousted in an internal coup, and his place has been taken by a duo of commanders who have particularly sadistic criminal reputations. Here's where I think my streetwise aspect of things um, really came into play. I knew how to deal with people, with rough people, and I grew up with rough people. Azric is now one of the most experienced CIA operatives on the ground. The agency has a request for him. They told me, says, you know, can you go out there and bring these guys back? I go, of course. Among many crimes, the rogue Contra commanders are accused of murdering a rival officer and raping his wife. As we heard at the start of this episode, Rick confronts one of them, Commander Badface, in the streets of a small town near the camps. It develops into an armed standoff, with the commander's bodyguard waving an Uzi submachine gun and Rick pointing his rifle at the commander. An open confrontation between the CIA and their allies, the Contras. One side will have to back down if bloodshed is to be avoided. I said, listen, don't make a real bad mistake here because you know me. If your guy starts to shoot, I'm taking you out right here and there. I said, look, you will be tried. You will be held accountable for some of the allegations. And if you're free, you'll come back. But you need to do this. And what was Rick really thinking? If he came up with that gun, that I was going to kill the son of a bitch. For a moment, nobody moves. And then the commander makes a gesture. So he went like this with his hands and told the guy, like, put it away, put it away, because this guy is serious. So he got in the helicopter, I took his gun away, and flew him back. But Rick has been tasked with arresting two rogue commanders. The day before, he went searching for the other one, Commander Krill. Krill can't be so easily isolated. He is at the Contra camp he has taken over surrounded by fighters who answer only to him. As usual, Rick is helicoptered in. He has just two men with him for support, a Contra trainee and a young Honduran captain. Great guy, but he wasn't, he wasn't much of a fighter. They approach the camp. So we landed outside this, not even a village, it was like a, a little outcropping of huts. I had radioed ahead and told the commander, the main commander, to meet me on the outskirts because the helicopter had to stay clear of the, uh, of the camp in order not to compromise it, if nothing else. This meeting place means the commander is separated from most of his troops. But Commander Krill doesn't turn up alone. The commander was there with this big guerrilla bodyguard. I sat down with them and I said, look, you know, we need to talk. There, there's some allegations of things going on, and and I could see them starting to squirm. And they, we, we all are armed. They, we're armed. They're armed also. And they had some guys, but nearby. But he, he was just there with his bodyguard. Rick decides to play on the commander's sense of hospitality, a host's duties. Remember, on paper, these two men are on the same side. So I told I told the bodyguard. I said, "Listen, my stomach is really bad. Here's a few pesos. Will you go get us?" to the little kiosk over there. Just get us some, some Pepsis or Cokes or whatever they have in a bottle because I'm sick, I'm really feeling bad. So he kind of looked at the commander and the commander said, yeah, go, go ahead. The bodyguard walks off. Commander Creel is now on his own. The trap is set. 
As soon as he disappeared into the little town, I grabbed the commander and put him on the helicopter. And I told him, I said, look, I am guaranteeing your safety, but you have to answer for these allegations. This is not a request. This is a military order that you are coming back. We took his weapon away, gave it to the pilot so he could see that, you know, we weren't just taking his weapon. We had given it to the pilot. He would get it eventually, never did. Um, so he gets in the helicopter, he goes off. The problem is Rick still has business at the camp. We went into camp and it was a mixed atmosphere. There were the cronies of the commanders that knew that the clock was ticking. And then there were the, the, the masses that were mostly relieved that, you know, hey, they're finally doing something about it. Everyone can see a confrontation brewing. I got other guys, you know, visual daggers coming at me. I'm going like, okay, I, there's a few people here that do not like me. And then Rick spots a junior contrafighter that he's helped before. The man had needed money for medical treatment for his wife. Rick had decided to pay for it out of his own pocket. Little peasant guy, he was a guerrilla fighter, but he was, you know, no rank whatsoever. Well, fast forward to this event. So um, I'm walking the, around the camp, and from behind the bushes, I hear this psst, psst, major, major. And it was this skinny guy hiding behind the bushes. And he told me, he says, they're planning to kill you tonight. When you go to sleep, they're going to come and try to kill you. One good turn deserves another. Rick thanks the man, but it's too late to leave. The helicopter has departed. We knew that he was right, because normally they would always put us, especially the gringo, in the center of the camp, because that's the safest part, where you have the rings of security around it. They put us in a hut on the outskirts of the camp. So what, what happened was, as soon as it got dark, we had our meal, they left, and I was there with my guys, and as soon as it was lights out, we crawled out the back window. There was a substantial hill behind us with big heavy rocks, a couple of hundred yards up. We all crawled up the thing, set up a perimeter, got our ammo out. We were just gonna sit it out and, and, and wait it out and see if they come after us. Escaping overland isn't an option. Because us going into the jungle by ourselves would have been stupid. I mean, who's gonna find us? For a while, nothing happens. A waiting game. I was going like, I'm not gonna get killed. You literally switch on and do your job. My job wasn't to sit there and worry about I should have, could have, would have. No, my job was how do I get me and my guys out of this? And then there is movement. Around midnight, it was fully dark. You see guys with flashlights coming into the house with the hutch where we were at. And I could hear their voices being raised like they, they were upset that I wasn't there. They were not there to bring me breakfast at uh, you know 11 o'clock at night. So my, my point to my guys was to say, look, you know, we, we don't have a lot of ammo. If these guys start coming up the line here, you do not fire until I tell you. If they were going to come to bite me, I was going to bite them back. But the Contras leave the hut empty-handed. So in the morning, we show up at the camp at first light and went to breakfast, just like nothing had happened. They, of course, weren't about to ask why weren't you in your hooch last night? Because I would have said, how the hell did you know that I wasn't in my hooch by last night? Did you go to my hooch? Why did you go to my hooch? And their survival tilts the balance of power in the camp. Now that gave confidence to the rest of the camp folks. And 
I was starting to get encircled more by the guys like, okay, this is what Major Alex is here to do. He's here to clean up. Uh, he survived this. He got the first commander out. A few hours later, the helicopter returns and Rick, Major Alex, is able to exit. The two rogue commanders get their day in court. Later on, I, we heard through some of our confidential contacts that they had been found guilty and they were executed. We didn't find out about that until later, but the camp reflourished and uh, kept on fighting for the, for the duration of the, uh, of the mission. The reason that I went there was because I had the credibility because I lived and I ate with these individuals five days a week for over three years. They knew me. I had trained them. I had been in, in, in harm's way with them. So I was sent not as a blunt object. You know, I went there on my credibility built through leadership and partnership. And the camp came back to normalcy and became a very competent camp. After years with the Contras, Rick has eventually moved to other CIA duties. Political pressure to stop US support for the Contras is growing. The hidden hand is no longer so hidden. I was ready to leave because I've been doing it for over three years now. Now we had people pouring into the camps. We had swollen the ranks and the American hand was now obvious. I was very emotionally involved and personally involved. Uh, you know, you, when you live in camps for people for three years, for God's sake, I mean, you know, you, you're breaking bread and getting shot at and doing all kinds of stupid stuff. And, you know, you can only stay in a place for so long before you're pushing your luck. The Sandinista government was eventually voted out of office. But their leader, Daniel Ortega, has made many comebacks. He's been president of Nicaragua for the last 15 years. I did get to visit during the, the calm period. And, you know, it was an up-and-coming third-world country, but it's still, you know, the oppression has come back. Corruption and, and abuses of power are, are evident. And I will tell you, my Mosquito Indian friend, he told me, he says, Alex, it's as bad as it was in 1981, the persecution of the Mosquito. These days, Rick is retired, with time to look back on his life. It'll be 60 years that I left Cuba. So um, I know what it is to lose a first country, my first country. And I have a debt of honor to my new country, to the United States of America. You know, I really believe that God puts paths in front of us. And if we pick the right one, um, everything kind of folds in. Rick Prado's book, Black Ops, The Life of a CIA Shadow Warrior, was published this year. I'm Vanessa Kirby. Here's a taste of next week's covert communication from True Spies. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. <laughs> 